All right, everybody, I've got somebody on the show here today that I've wanted for a very long time. Um, I consider him even to be a friend nowadays. We've broken some bread and maybe had a drink. Do you want me? I, I know, man, I know. Let's, let's not make it awkward quite yet. Uh, Matthew Mohan is here with me today. Um, he's got some exciting things that he is doing in the industry. We're going to be able to talk about those, including building Expert Institute, if I could get through it, along with Listen to This Bull. Um, an amazing podcast and a lot of information there. It is a pleasure to have this gentleman. He's going to be able to educate me today and bring some immense value to you. You're going to want to stick around from this one. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Matthew Moholland, how you doing, buddy? Hey, how's it going? It's going very well. Um, I'm so happy that you've taken the time to come over here today. Uh, thank you. Yeah, uh, I appreciate you inviting me over. Yeah. Um, love your show. So this is always good. And every time we talk at any of the conventions and everything, I, 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 I like hanging out with you anyway, so... It's, and your team's fun. Yeah, it's good stuff, man. They're good Except guys. For that guy. Yeah, well, Hoffney's on his way out anyway. He's uh, <laughs> he's Hoffney is leaving us to go start some big cinematic film or feature or something, and um, you know, Netflix or Hulu or Ant Man Five. Yeah, that's the winner. That actually would be pretty cool. You know, maybe Car Six. Yeah. Maybe that could be the way that we go here. You know, because <laughs> the first five or whatever that were Toy Story Eight, um, we come up with something original. Uh, so it's good to have you over here. You've been traveling around. You've been doing some stuff. I, I see you with Euroshield over there sometimes. Yeah. Um, good relationship w- with them and what they're yeah, doing. Yeah. Oh yeah. So they're um, they're they're. Well, I don't know what her actual role is, but she's an engineer over there. I think she might be the president of the company. Mm-hmm. Uh, Leslie Gustafson. She's a good friend of mine, and David Summerlee introduced me to her. But uh, they donated the hail cannon, the big one that I have, uh, to me a couple. of maybe a year and a half ago and it took me a while to get everything together so that I could actually make it repeatable and things but uh, we called it our shit cannon which is an acronym s-h-i-t shoots hail into things uh, but since then we've we've made the the smaller hail gun we call the little shit so but we shoot the shit and uh, the benefit of Euroshield is that they have a hail proof or what they call a hail proof uh, shingle and so Whenever they go to a convention, if I don't have my own booth, they actually invite me over to just hang out with them, bring the hail cannon, and we shoot the shit at their uh, hail-proof shingle to show that it's hail-proof. And I get to have an audience while I do it and talk about how there's a lot of bullshit taught by some big engineering firms out there that have to do with hail and a lot of assumptions, way too many assumptions. So it's a lot of fun. We'll make sure we put some across the bottom right here. We've got some great video of that at a couple of the conferences. And that gun is nothing to mess with, man. That thing shoots some hail out of it oh, like yeah. crazy. You know, when you do that, you know, the reason you do is, I th- uh, let me ask you. I mean, you shoot these hail cannons at different types of shingle. Um, you shot it, of course, at Euroshield. Um, any tile at all? You already yeah. used to, some tile. And so for people who are just getting a chance to know, I think this is great. You you want to figure things out. There's something in your mind where you're, let's figure it out right here. You know, everyone talks about hail damage on roofs and what a 100-mile-an-hour projectile would do to something. You actually have taken the time with this stuff to, okay, let's actually shoot it at it and see what it looks like. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's big. Yeah. It's surprising how much you don't realize you don't know until you actually go and attempt the thing yourself. You might assume that some, like, I'll give you an example. When, when, when people are looking at roof repairability and they're actually talking about how, you know, shingles are brittle and, and they can't be repaired because of that. And if you actually take the time to go out and perform a shingle replacement yourself, you'll realize that most of the damage occurs when you remove the nails. It has nothing to do with when you're installing the nails. 
that is a point where it can fail for many different reasons, but most of the time it fails when you're removing nails. So why are we sticking to a brittleness test? But if you don't actually go out there and attempt to do these things yourself, you won't realize what the better argument is. So I, I spent a day, the very first day I had that hail gun, I shot the same shingle eight or nine times with the same size hail at the same speed. And I had eight or nine different size hail impact marks on that same shingle. Yeah. Which is crazy because they're measuring these things and saying, well, that's not consistent with 1.5 inch hail. That's not consistent with two inch hail. That must be an older storm. No, it totally could be. That that 1.75 inch mark or hail stone that I shot at it hit a certain spot on that roof or on that shingle that made it a three inch hail mark. It doesn't mean that it wasn't consistent with 1.75 inch hail. It just happened to hit exactly the right spot to be able to allow that kind of damage to occur. And so for the average person out there, though, like, is there a difference in the type? I mean, in all your time, you've been doing a lot of this. I mean, you do it at your, by yourself. You've really tested different products. I don't want to get into names here. <laughs> Obviously, we don't want to do that. It but what I, It could be. Um, <laughs> and this episode could be taken down. And then we want to get <laughs> But for the average person out there, is there is there really a difference between one type of shingle and another type of shingle? Or are we basically all looking at the same exact thing in your opinion? Oh, no, there are some differences. There are. There are. The the class four shingles that are out there are all very similar to each other. Okay. Um, but if they're not even a class two, there are some manufacturers that have a very low-end shingle that definitely get damaged a lot easier than others even brand new right out of the package in fact i like to install those shingles on my mock shingle boards for classes because it looks old immediately so i, I tend to buy the lower end ones for my courses just because i can't get old shingles if i can get new but i can get this one that looks old already yeah. it works out fine so there are definitely some differences uh but without naming names you know just if you're looking at the classification of shingles the the higher the class number for hail damage or impact resistance um, the more modifiers there are in the um, asphalt so the more polymers there are that makes it more elastic so things can kind of bounce off of it but that will also hold the granules a lot longer now we don't really know longevity for a lot of these products though because they really haven't been produced for that long that are class four so we'll see how this actually looks uh, but a lot of these same polymers are built into modified bitumen roofs low slip materials. And so we do have a little bit of an idea of how it's going to react over time. So when you're a homeowner out there, I'm thinking about that. And then in just a minute, we'll jump into everything you're doing that's exciting. But I'm just thinking about this from a homeowner's perspective. You know, these guys, somebody sits down in front of them and starts, you know, upgrading them on shingle and, you know, the price difference. And they're wondering, is there really a difference? Or am I just, you know, am I buying yeah. just a name brand or a, um, a classification is all that I'm buying to make me feel better inside? But there is there is oh, yeah. a difference there. What you're there telling is. me, there is a difference. Yeah, um, it's it's not fake. Now the whole jump from 30, 35 year warranties we used to have to suddenly having lifetime warranties that yeah that was that was a gimmick. Yeah. Um, the amount of algae resistance one shingle has over another mostly gimmick as well. You might even see cross sections of a granule where it looks like there's copper inside the granule. That's just bullshit. They, they put a coating of copper sulfate on a lot of these, which is liquid applied. It's not an actual hard casing of copper that are on top of these. And then 
clay on top of that. That's that's just ridiculous. And the, so. this warranty thing is something that has upset me for a while, especially living here in Florida. Mm-hmm. I, I think that homeowners get it in their mind when they get a new roof that, hey, I've got a 25-year warranty on my roof. Great. I feel good. Um, not understanding that. No, you don't. Not even close. No. Um, and what's going to, and they think, well, sure, in 10 years, I'm going to look, there's a defect in my roof or whatever they want to classify it as themselves. But it seems to me that at that point, when warranties are called into question, that it becomes this battle constantly between the manufacturer and the installer. Somebody pointing fingers at the other person about why the homeowner now has a problem that nobody is willing to or can solve. And I, I, when I see these lifetime warranties, I think, why? It's not the truth. And we, if the industry would regulate itself a little bit, then we have people that I think could be happier and stand with their warranties, not lifetime or 50-year stuff that makes absolutely zero sense and isn't going to be enforced. I think, I think that that's probably an issue that's not just in our industry, though. Anybody that puts some kind of a guarantee on their product a lot of times yeah. is gimmicky anyway. You know, it was... Um, it was Chris Farley that said it best, I think. <laughs> I often said that before in my life. <laughs> I mean, but you, so let's switch to it. For, for people who don't know you, man, I mean, I have looked at you as the go-to when it comes to the stuff that I don't understand. Um, before I got into this industry really hard with SB76, when I was going through that, you do a great job with your mind of breaking down laws on both sides, which is unique. Um, you will look at the contractor, you look at the adjuster, the homeowner, the insurance company. You have an ability that I don't have, which is to compartmentalize and go, I'm not just doing this for this. I really want to understand all sides of the situation. Um, we're going to jump into some of the laws, but you're doing the Building Experts Institute. Uh, my understanding is here, you've got two partners in this thing. I want to make sure I just, um, it's a Matt Danskin, is that correct? And yeah. John Tillman. Yeah. Um, definitely want to talk to John, does some great production quality, um, and hopefully get a chance to talk to everybody else. But what is Building Experts Institute? What are you going to be doing over there to help the industry? We're really excited about this thing. So uh, the Building Experts Institute is a, it's almost like a master class. Have you, have you seen master class online? Of course. All right. So, so picture a master class in your mind, but it's everyone from our industry, possibly on both sides. We're hoping to, to capture insurance adjusters as well. But the idea is there are experts out there you've never heard of. You've never seen their stuff. You don't know what they're doing because they're in the trenches and they're doing it, and they want to teach you. Mm-hmm. They have a lot of information to give, but they don't have the time to actually sit down and do this. So with the Building Experts Institute, we can help those experts put their content together. It can help them structure it in such a way that it will have impact and we can produce it, we can market it, we can sell it, and we can split the profits with them. It's almost like a music label. That's so cool, man. It's going to be great. So we're just getting started. We opened everything up last week, really, and really everybody found out about it earlier this week. That's but uh, yeah, it's been it's been a hell of a long few months getting the getting the infrastructure really put together. Um, and we've got a lot of courses that are lined up already. 
So we're not opening our doors just yet to the outside experts because we've already got our own content that's ready to go. We might as well jump on that stuff. But we are going to be looking for experts very, very soon. Um, and we'll have an online portal for you to apply to. So if you're one of those people that you feel like you've got something that you're the best at, you want to help out, and you want to make a little money teaching it, uh, we probably can help you out. And we can produce all that content. We can take a lot of the time and effort off your hands so that you don't have to. God, I love this, man. Now, when you say industry, when I, when I think of maybe public adjusters, maybe engineers, but the industry becomes so broad very quickly. Where do you go out from there? So are you talking about the industry of, of blue collar, the trades itself? Where is it going to stop and end for you? Who's, who, if they're watching right now, Matt, can you say, we can help you with that one thing you're very good at? Let's get it out there. We called it Building Experts Institute for a reason. Okay. We didn't want to pigeonhole ourselves into claims only. We have different schools inside here. So we've got the school of claims that we're really focusing on right now because I'm bringing a lot of content to the table at the moment, and I happen to be a partner in it. So the Building Experts Institute School of Claims is looking for people for claims training, but it's building experts. We're constructing experts, but we're also building experts, right? Yeah. So we, we can have training on how to build something, how to properly identify things in the code and anything that is related to buildings, it can expand very far from there. But uh, we're going to focus on claims handling for the moment and build that out first because that is the portion of our industry that I think needs the most help. And then we can expand from there. But we, we definitely kept it broad on purpose. I think it's a I think it's a wonderful idea, and I, I'm thinking back to like it's it's almost like a university where you walk in, an institute is the way you put it, and I say you know what I really want to know more about this very specific thing within your university, and so I click on it, and now I've got an expert who, if I'm going to say in a couple of hours or maybe a couple small courses, however you guys break it up, mm. is going to be able to make me a layman. Maybe not an expert at it, but darn good at it to where now I can speak the language. I can feel more proficient at this thing. Um, and if I become interested in this side over here, well, now I can do that as a layman. And if I'm a contractor and I want to understand more about this area, then I can do it all through the Building Experts Institute. Um, yeah. So it's not only for someone from the outside. It's also for the contractor. It's also for maybe a PA who needs to brush up on something who doesn't understand a certain topic as well. Um, and they want to improve. This is for the public and the industry is what it sounds like. It right? is. I mean, there's, there's con the course that we have up. Our very first course is Defeating Unethical Engineer Tactics. Ooh. And that's a great class for property management if you're in that. So if you're a property manager and you're dealing with claims yourself, you're not getting a PA involved, you probably need this because there's going to be an engineer involved. You need to know what you're getting into. So there's definitely a, a accessibility there for courses for everyone so we don't want to pigeonhole it and just be for public adjusters well we've got classes for insurance adjusters that are planned we've got classes for contractors roofers restoration guys mitigation guys uh forensic engineers attorneys we've got a lot that are that's already planned out that's already mapped out with the right experts for those our very next class is going to be on assessing repairability of asphalt shingles there you go. And guess who's going to be teaching that class? Sure. So Chad Williams, Chad mm -hmm. T. Williams from Valor Engineering is going to be teaching this one. Mm -hmm. And he was 
the author of the Asphalt Shingle Repairability Assessment Guide produced by the National Academy of Forensic Engineers. So there's a document that actually lists out a whole methodology for doing this that's published by the National Academy of Forensic Engineers. This is the author of that. He's teaching this class. See, I would ask so many contractors or adjusters, you ever read it? You ever read the book? You ever read? No. Well, why wouldn't you check that out then? Why wouldn't you become more educated in what you, your craft, right? what you want to do and be the best at? Um, you know, if you, that just it makes sense to me. I think the one, the, the one group you didn't mention, which I think is the most incredible, homeowners, yeah. business owners. You said property managers, and I like that because I used to sell security contracts, you know, security guards at the mm-hmm. front gate of HOAs and condominium associations. And you'd see these managers come in and out of these things like crazy. They'd move a manager, a new one in. And when that manager comes in in property management, they've got to take care of this building. A building, they've never done this before. Maybe they did it on a small scale, but they have no idea. Now they're, they're meant to be proficient in things that I don't know. And so imagine now it's a place where, hey, you want to become a little more proficient in it, at least be able to understand the basics to make a better decision. You can do it. And how many homeowners out there, you've got a, you're investing $50,000 in a retail roof. That's a big investment. It Maybe really you want to understand yeah. what's going on with, okay, somebody comes down and they say, well, you, the brittle test we just did. I don't know what that is. Does it mean anything to me? I'm just supposed to shake my head and go, right. cool. Okay, I'm glad you did that. Or can they go to a place and go, hey, I can learn a little bit about that. I can ask questions somewhat intelligently to make a better decision. I. I think it's going to be an incredible segment there with homeowners and business owners and property managers, like you said, that are, are really going to find this thing to be valuable. I think the, when we get to the point where we're, we have experts coming in to teach homeowners, and the, a lot of that content oh, is going wait. to be free. That's going to be great. The homeowners need to have access to these things without having to pay because they're already in a pickle. Uh, but there are a lot of things that we're producing for that. I'm actually trying to produce right now with Listen to This Bull some content that's uh, directed at homeowners and then some content that is designed for contractors to send to the insurance company directly. Okay, so let's talk about Listen to This Bull. That's a good transition right there. You've been doing this for how many years now? Ooh, um, six years. Um, you do a live show. You get you get on there. Yeah. And I, I appreciate people who go live with their with their content because – you really have an opportunity to see the good moments, the bad, the awkward, and you don't get to edit them out. People get an opportunity to get to know you and your personality, and they tune in for that. Um, the experience of going live can be can be a lot. Two questions for you: Why do you do the live thing? You could make yourself a lot more polished, and you know you you could do it if you wanted to. I don't think it's your personality. No, but yeah. second to that. What is listen to this bull? Because it is you, it is, how would I put this? There are certain, th- Monday night football will be Monday night football with or without the announcers that are on it. It's Monday night football. Listen to this bull without you? It is you. I mean, that's what it is. It's your personality. It is you that is so unique. What do you? What is listen to this bull for you? What do you step in there and you go, I'm going to expose something. I'm going to bring value in this way. And has that changed over the years for you? Well, it has changed. Um, it, it is for me, it, it's almost a passion project. It, it's not something that uh, we make money on. Listen to this bull doesn't make money. But it's, 
Um, is there anything that just makes you just mad, right? Just just irks you? Yeah. I was I talking to, to my, to my right oldest now. son the other day, just trying to figure out, you know, maybe he knows what makes him angry because he's trying to figure out what he wants to do in his life. What makes you angry more than anything else? And attack that. That'll be something that you want to do with your life forever because it makes you angry and you want to fix it. And it's already eating away at you. Is there something like that now? For me, it's the injustice in, in policyholders just getting screwed. And not even knowing it, just being lied to constantly, it drives me insane yeah. to see this kind of stuff. So when I get, when I can see, when I can see an overall systemic issue, because there's so much data that I'm able to kind of oversee, if I can see that and I can see how it's being manipulated and the way that that tactic is used to eventually lie to this person to say no when it's definitely owed that drives me up the wall and i want to expose that as much as i can because the more people that hear it the less they'll be able to do it and so it it drives me to find the bullshit that's in the industry and and i do point out bullshit on both sides because there is bullshit on both sides mm-hmm. um but i i am definitely policyholder minded yeah mainly so there's there's a lot that's there, but when we first started listening to this bull, it was um, alongside my public adjusting firm, All Good Adjustments, and it was there and designed to bring business to All Good Adjustments. We would point out the bullshit that we had to deal with and how we overcame it, and that's how it started. Listen to this bull was, hey, listen to this bull we just dealt with, and then our slogan was, let us deal with the bull, which is beautiful. I, I wish I could bring that back. There's there's nothing I could use that with at the moment, but it's mine. You can't have it. <laughs> Um, now it's, it's, it's adapted from there when, when we sold all good adjustments, I haven't, I haven't acted as a public adjuster in some time. I can't really, because of the content that I teach, it would, it would present some kind of a conflict. It would show that I'm being biased, that I, it it wouldn't hold as much weight is what it comes down to. So I can't really be a PA anymore. I can make a hell of a lot more money doing that. I made a lot more money as a PA, but I can't really do that and still be effective at pointing out the bullshit and why it's bullshit, because then I would be biased. I would have interest in the outcome of this argument. Well, let's take the layman, though, for you, Matt. I mean, you're talking about policy. There's millions of policies and policyholders and homeowners and renters policies and everything. If I'm just sitting there and I've never never dealt with one before, you know, the average person, what, may get one to two claims they deal with on their home in their entire life, maybe a few more than that they deal with on their car. Yeah. I would be surprised to know that you have made a show for this long, interpreting policy in a different way and language and how they use it. Shouldn't it just be what it is? Like, shouldn't there be a standard and a policy met that everyone, that I don't have to interpret it, that it's just true and it is what the policy says it is? That would be nice. The problem is that there are statements and policies that are the same across borders. One state to the next, exact same sentence. But the courts in those different states have interpreted them differently in the different states. So even from one state to the next, the same sentence and the same policy might be done differently. You know, the appraisal language um, is, is a very good example of that. In, in four states, the, 
when there's a difference of amount of loss in those four states, amount of loss is strictly a dollar amount difference and not differences of scope. Mm. And scope is a whole nother issue because we don't know what that is. Let's talk about scope of repairs, scope of uh, coverages, scope of damages, mouthwash. We really don't really know what they mean by scope, and they don't define it when they come out with these rulings. We just know that you can't have differences of scope. So in, in a state like Georgia, if you were to have an estimate as a contractor written on the same program as the insurance company on Xactimate or something like that, and you had one line item different, they would say, no, this isn't a difference of amount of loss. This is a difference of scope. So it's not appraisable. You go to the next state over, and it's very appraisable. And it's the same sentence. If you or we disagree on the amount of loss, either may demand appraisal. This is, this is part of the problem. But there's ambiguity that's built into policies, and it seems to be that the ambiguity is there purposefully. Because it would be simple for them to define words. All they'd have to do is set a definition, yes. and it would make it very clear. And there are some policies that have done this. And then it becomes very clear that those policies don't have much coverages. So the former smart plan has defined a lot of things, not everything, but a lot of things. And by defining those things, it has made it less ambiguous of a policy, but it also becomes more clear that there isn't much coverage in that policy. So you have to add a lot of these add-on coverages to it in order to get anything out of it. And I think then they, they designed it that way on purpose. This would be kind of an a la carte menu that's why they designed it that way. So it wasn't terribly wrong of them to build their policy like that. You're just supposed to add the other coverages onto it. That's the way that they designed that whole system. Uh, but the policy itself is less ambiguous because it defines a lot of things. It defines marring. The very few policies will define that. So there's, if they would just define certain things that they constantly argue with us about. Got an argument with uh, Steve Badger on, on LinkedIn. Steve Badger is defense counsel. That's kind of a big deal. Um, so he's always, he takes a side of the insurance carriers because they hire him to. Well, he says that there is no damage to um, polyiso insulation on a low slope roof when it gets hit by hail. He says, no damage. Zero. Zero. Okay. And I said, well, wait a minute. There is some damage because it's measurable. It might be a very small amount. It could be less than 1% efficiency loss but it's still an efficiency loss. So there is still technically functional damage. Mm -hmm. Also, you're talking about fractures to the paper face of this thing, fractures to any covered property, fractures to covered property. You're saying that's not damaged. I was like, well, it's unreasonable. It's, 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 why would anybody file a claim for something that they would never do anything with unless they had an insurance policy in place? Because it's a contract, Steve, they're paying for this. We're going to be right back to that episode, but first I have a question for you. What makes a great website? You know, if you were to ask a hundred different marketing companies, I imagine you would get a hundred different answers, but I think everyone would say that the website has to be functional. We all hear that word, but what does it really mean? See, when you dive into what a website's going to mean for your company, a lot of questions begin to pop up. You know, how are we going to capture the information for our potential customers? Where are they going to come from? What kind of feeling do we want our customers to have when they come here about our brand? You know, what is this website going to say about our business? You know, nowadays you can look at a website as really being the brick and mortar of your store. And so there's a lot of questions that come up. And when you've got those questions, you want to work with a company that has experience. And that's why we're proud to work with Scorpion here on this show. 
Scorpion has the experience to get your website done right the first time. They work with over 6,000 home service providers across the country. And you know what that means? They've heard your questions, they've heard your concerns, and they know how to solve them. Scorpion has the experience that you need to get your website done right. And honestly, you deserve that. You're working hard on your business. You shouldn't have to worry about what your website looks like. You shouldn't have to worry about if it works or if you're capturing the right people or if maybe someone who is a lead is being lost somewhere in translation out there on the internet. Work with Scorpion. You can find them at the website right here below. Go over there, let them know that Patrick sent you and begin a tutorial. They'll be able to get on a webinar with you and show you everything that their websites can do for you and your team. So if you're anything like me or other business owners that I work with, and at one time you may have thought, is my website doing everything that it's supposed to? Here's the answer for you. It's probably not. So go over there and get with Scorpion, get the answers that you deserve and the website you deserve as well. Until next time, everybody. Let's get right back to that episode. Coverage. Well, not only that, I would say that under that contract, they are required to disclose that they've had damage to their roof. If, uh, that is correct under some of these policies. I, if I have damage, I have to bring that before the insurance company. If not, they come out there on, let's just say I don't report what happened on my back slope, but I get damage on the front one. Well, they come out there and they go, well, have you had any other damage to the home since, you know, since this or before this? Well, yeah, I had some damage on the back end, but it wasn't anything much, so I didn't report it. And I think that that puts the homeowner maybe at an unfair and an unfair situation. Is, is that fair to say? And because that'll that be would be, to- that would be, to be honest, uh, I haven't seen that many policies that require you to report something that you're not claiming, but they are out there. But what they do require you to do is to immediately report or promptly notify the insurer of damages and you might not be aware that you have damage until yeah. a leak occurs. Sure. And so for a lot of states you have you have one year or, or less to file a claim for hail specifically, uh, based on different state laws and different policy regulations and different things. So let me let me rephrase that then. Let's just yeah. say you you get a leak in the back and you fix it yourself. You, yeah. you rub some tar on it and you get it fixed. Then the individual comes out there for the the adjuster for a larger problem you have and they ask that question. Has there been any other issues with your roof that maybe we're not aware of? Yeah, small leak on the other side right there. And I fixed it about a year ago. Um, got some tar over that. Haven't had a problem since then. Cool. No problem. Let me write that down right here. Um, and, you know, when a lot of times they'll, they'll if, if, you're on a shing, if you're on a roof that has like a, a discontinued shingle and you oh, replace one. one with a shingle that's still on the market, yeah. DIY repair kind of a thing or a handyman special, they put a shingle in. Now the insurance company is saying that, well, we don't have to replace this whole roof just because your shingles are discontinued. You've already made patches with a different shingle, so it's okay. And that's, that's the argument that they make. And it's, it's a bullshit argument in reality. It doesn't meet the conditions of the policy. Imagine, imagine you're ambidextrous. Okay. And one day you're in your kitchen and you're chopping carrots with your right hand and you're just chopping away and you're chopping away and suddenly you slice your left finger and you're like, ah, what do I do? You don't have health insurance. Okay. So you run over the sink, you wash it out as much as you can, get some Dawn dish soap in there, it burns Sounds like hell. You grab a lot of paper towels and you duct tape it closed and you just pray and hope that that thing doesn't get infected. And that's that's the repair that you've done. Okay, Maybe you've used a shingle that's currently on the market. <laughs> some Band-Aids. Yeah. So the next year, you're in your kitchen 
chopping carrots with your left hand because you're ambidextrous, of course. Right. So you're chopping carrots with your left hand, chopping carrots, and lo and behold, the same thing happens to you. You slice your right finger, and you're like, ah, but you got smart in between that time. You got yourself health insurance. Good, good. I'm glad right? I did that. So now, do you run over to the sink and do the exact same procedure and just hope for the best, or do you run to the hospital? Hospital. Yeah. You need to get to your ass to the emergency room. You probably need some stitches. So you go in there, you show it to the doctor. The doctor's going to look at that, and he's going to try to contemplate the best way that he can repair that. Do you think that that doctor is going to look at this other finger and go, hmm, it looks like you were okay with a repair like this in the past. We can do it like that again. Or is he going to do it properly on your right finger. Mm-hmm. I mean, he swore the Hippocratic Oath. He can do no additional harm. So do the insurance companies, in a way. So he's going to sew this thing up in such a way that there's going to be minuscule scarring. He's going to give you some antibiotics to make sure that there's no yeah. infection. It's going to be a reasonable, proper repair because that's what he's required to do with his license. Yes. These are two different repairs for the same injury on the same body. We're talking about a repair on a roof that was done without insurance and a repair that is being done with insurance. The insurance company doesn't get to decide that they can do a subpar repair just because a subpar repair has been done in the past. There is a standard of care that is necessary for a licensed contractor to come in and replace those. Not, not only that. They have coverage on a component level these days anyway. So each individual component is to be replaced with like kind of quality. If there isn't that available, then there's nothing to replace it with. If there's nothing compatible that you can stick in there that is going to be a proper repair afterwards, the insurance company can't pay for that because then you're putting, they're putting you as a policyholder in a situation where you have less coverage in the future or that you might be in a safety situation. If, if you talk about whether or not there's a higher likelihood that there's going to be a leak with a repair with an incompatible shingle versus a full roof replacement, there's a higher likelihood you're going to have a leak if you're installing an incompatible shingle into a roof. Makes sense. So there is a safety concern because water intrusion into a house leads to mold, which leads to health concerns. Absolutely. So for a building official, safety concerns are very important. So here's be my thing on this is that you just went through one example right there. And you probably could have talked about 10 more minutes about all the intricacies, I mean this, of that one small example we have. And we're talking about policy. I think perhaps then maybe the issue of why things have become so ambiguous and there's so many – I love how you said that, that the more ambiguous the policy, the more that it covers because it's not clear in what it actually covers. I never thought about it from that perspective, which keeps our attorneys happy and insurance companies fighting for what they want. It, 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 it makes well, it sense also, to me. It does, but it also lets the insurance company interpret it the, way, the way that they want, want to, do it. to yeah. lower the amount of coverage that they're extending. And they'll say, no, we only offer direct physical loss. And since they're the ones writing the policy, I wonder who the contract is in favor of. The ambiguity is in favor of the insurance company. It really is. And so when I think about this, I think that the problem is that the laws being created in every state, not just here in Florida, the laws are being created by individuals who don't understand what you're speaking about right now. They're doing this from their state capital, and they're legislating down what they hear from one group. Um, here in Florida, the only group that has the money to be able to make it to these people are insurance companies. And I, I've got to assume, Matt, it's the same in every single industry or in every single state out there. That well, It's worse in other states. Florida does have a lot of consumer protection groups that are out there fighting and trying. Yeah. 
FAPIA for the public adjusters does have lobbyists that are out there constantly um, giving opposite interpretations. The the Bar Association is fighting a lot of these things as well. They don't want this also. So there there is organizations that have decent amount of money. The Bar Association has plenty of money. Yeah. They're fighting this. Even even the realtors are, are getting involved in a lot of these arguments and conversations. So in Florida, it's a little bit better for policyholders on that side of things Good. than in other states. Other states have nothing. Right. And we don't even know that shit's happening. Suddenly, legislation will pop up something that comes up in a state and it's, it's being brought to the floor the next day. And it's like, whoa. Exactly. We had no idea this was coming. But, so. but property insurance and property damage, it's not sexy. We're not talking about <laughs> – so this is why I think it doesn't get any attention. No, because it it's isn't. not bathrooms or war or, you know, how somebody feels inside. It's none of that. What it is is it's damage to your property. And I think people, if they – it's like, ah, I'm not going to cover that on the 6 o'clock news. Property damage and insurance premiums. Because that's not views for people, and but yet it affects so many people when it comes to these big storms. And then they go, they take the policy out, Matt, and they go, oh, this is what Matt was talking about when he said all the ambiguity and the language that I don't seem to understand that's been sitting in my drawer. It's a very lost and hopeless feeling, I think, for a lot of people. I think if, if, um, if you're in a state where you don't have a lot of help from lobbyists or organizations it's after those major events in, that happen in those states, those big catastrophes, that you do have a lot of policyholder support. Mm-hmm. People actually care because there's so many people that have a claim suddenly and it's hurting them personally. Otherwise, you, you never have support for these kind of things because nobody cares, like you say. Mm. Nobody cares. But right after a major event, it's like you don't want to waste the the crisis that's there. You want to take advantage of the fact and really push as much good legislation that's policyholder centric as you can whenever there is a major event that occurs in that state. So we seem to have the opposite going on in Florida at the moment where these major crises happen and we don't get legislation that's policyholder centric. We get, seem to get legislation that's mostly for the insurance carriers. Now, those bills that did come out did have some good things in there. There were good things in it. But the the lack of attorney's fees, the the one-way fee statute, uh, definitely hurts policyholders. Sure does. That's most of their leverage is gone. And they don't have a lot of leverage to begin with when you're talking about leverage against a Goliath insurance company. Yeah. Um, we've talked about that on this show. And, you know, I think that me and you are in, in, in agreement on this is that attorney fees for a fixed or low income family, they need to be taken care of when they win their case against the Goliath of a billion dollar, you know, uh, insurance carrier. Yeah. And the fact that these families are going to be forced to take settlements and lowball offers because they will not be able to afford to hire an attorney to represent them, um, and the insurance companies know it, um, is sad and it's disgraceful because what will end up happening, these families are not going to be able to put their lives back together and perhaps will have to turn to shoddy repairs, high interest loans that predators will come in and offer these families at 20 some odd percent that they won't be able to take care of. And this kind of situation is not years off. I mean, or 10 years away. It, it could even be the next big storm that hits the state of Florida. And um, I think our governor is short-sighted and unfortunately is looking at this as a, as a calculated risk that if nothing happens in this summer, I'll be at the federal level and I'll be doing what I need to do. 
and that's not going to hurt me. I don't have to be here to answer to what this is going to do to millions of Floridians. I'll be gone. I'll get the state and deal with it yourself is what it seems like to me, unfortunately. It does seem that way. And, and you might even find that the, um, like, like what happens in many states, the, the former insurance commissioner becomes a lobbyist for the insurance companies right after their time as the commissioner. Yep. So it makes you wonder how they got that position. But there's, it's, it's ugly. So Florida, it was pointed to as, as this state that is so messed up. And it, and it is. Don't get me wrong. This state is messed up. And the insurance rates are extremely high. Um, but this was being pushed by the carriers as the way of reducing rates. Mm. And it was said during the debates um, at the state capitol on this that, you know, if the rates aren't reduced after passing this bill, then the Congress was going to be pissed off. Mm. And that, you know, they're going to do something about it. So Congress is pissed because the rates aren't reducing. They're actually still going up. Yes. So these, there are other states right now that are having similar battles. Louisiana has a bill that's being proposed to remove uh, attorney's fees. Um, I don't remember clearly if Illinois has the attorney's. They never did. So it's not Illinois. I'm thinking of something else. But there, there are other states that are having these battles. And this is trying to be pushed. Uh, for every state, there are defense councils that have taken up this banner, kind of pundits for the insurance carriers that are saying, uh, re- remove uh, attorney's fees. This is the time. Get it while you can. Yeah, they have to do it right now because if a year goes by in Florida and our rates don't get reduced, then they can't say, well, see, it worked in Florida. They're going to have to have some other scapegoat to say then. So if they don't get it this year, I don't know if they're going to get it. Hopefully they don't get it this year. But the rates haven't gone down. There's always got to be another boogeyman to find. Right. And, you know, if it's not an AOB, then it's the pesky attorneys or the door-to-door salesmen or then it's the PAs. And, you know, I, I, it's always somebody else until I ask, when are people going to go, you know what, maybe it's just greed. Maybe it's just people who want to make more money and they want to make their, their shareholders that much more profitable because the insurance company is not at holding to the homeowner. They're holding to a shareholder as a for-profit entity. Yeah. And there's, there's a conflict of interest there that is so great. Um, you want to reduce cost and increase profit. Well, the easiest way is let's not pay out the claims. Let's make sure we pay the least amount possible. And I'm happy that people like you are out there to educate. And that's what I want to talk about when it comes to education. There's a term thrown around a lot, two of them, that hopefully you can define for for me and for even new contractors out there, I don't think understand. Arbitration, appraisal. How are these used? I'm not going to say interchangeably, but as part of a process. Because here in Florida, they are now offering binding arbitration within policy renewals. So yeah. it's coming there. And I think the average person might think binding arbitration, okay, whatever. It doesn't sound that bad. Instead of court and I get $100 off, check this box, please. Um, how are these two terms being used for contractors and for carriers to benefit each one, if you could? Because you've got a good way of looking at both sides. Can you, can you talk to me about both? Well, it's interesting to you see start how they're there. applied um, across state borders because appraisal is – I'll start with appraisal. Please. Just, just so you're aware on how, how appraisal works. Appraisal isn't like a home appraiser where you send someone out and they tell you what the value of your home is. 
although the value of the home can be appraised in in commercial properties and anything that might have a co-insurance penalty possibility. But for typical appraisal, and what, what most people are talking about is appraising how much the value of the loss is, the amount of loss. So if you disagree with your insurance company on what the amount of loss is, you say, well, no, you owe me this much because this is how much all my damages will cost me to repair. This is my amount of loss. And they say, well, we disagree. It's this much. Uh, that's a disagreement on amounts of loss. Either party can demand appraisal. Appraisal is an alternative dispute resolution, meaning it's an alternative to filing suit. So if you go to appraisal, you kind of limit yourself on going to suit in most states. In Florida, you can still go to suit afterwards, and you can say that, see, they increased the amount of money in appraisal, so that's evidence of bad faith. But in most states, if you go to appraisal and they pay the fees, there's no bad faith. It wipes that out completely. So there's no suit generally after appraisal, except in very few states. So in appraisal, you would hire your own appraiser. And this is supposed to be a disinterested person, meaning it doesn't matter if they win or lose, they get the same amount of money. A uh, competent person. That's a good question on what that means. I have no idea. Because uh, does that mean that they're competent in the construction or they're competent in estimating it? Or the, uh, we, we don't really know. So competency is, is definitely an argument that's being made in some states right now. In fact, in some states, they say, that in order to be an appraiser, you might have to be an adjuster. That's that's starting to come out in Louisiana. Okay. But you can't be an adjuster that's tied to that claim. But in Florida, it's so messed up, though, because for years, if you were a public adjuster, you would name yourself the appraiser. And then the insurance company adjuster would name themselves as the appraiser hmm. or someone in their company or the public adjuster named someone in their company. And they were okay with that, which is definitely wrong. It mm. doesn't make sense. That's not a disinterested person. It's the interested person. They're the interested parties. Yeah. Right. So luckily, that has gone away with the new bills. So I think that that was a good move. I can't believe it required a bill. It's stupid that it required a bill. But that's one of the weird things about Florida that exists. So in appraisal, you hire your own disinterested person. The carrier is supposed to do the same thing. And so these third parties that aren't supposed to be biased are supposed to come together they pick a third person that doesn't get involved hopefully called an umpire and that third person that is just pre-approved love the name umpire yeah let's get an umpire in there right let's get an umpire calling those balls and strikes <laughs> that's what supposed to be it really is so they they come in and, and they choose this third person they put off to the wings and hopefully they never need to use that guy uh, but you pay your appraiser and they pay their appraiser. And if the umpire has to get involved, then you split the fees between them. But your appraiser is supposed to set the amount of loss and come to an agreement if they can on what the amount of loss is. A lot of times they can't. They have to get the umpire involved. And then any two of those three people that agree with each other can set the amount of loss. If it's a binding appraisal language in the policy, then that becomes the amount of loss and the carrier owes it. For a lot of policies, it's no longer binding. See, I, I've, now I've become a huge fan of appraisals since I work with Brad Gardner, Lump Sum Contract. We talked about him a little before the podcast. Yeah. And, you know, when I've listened to Brad teach this, it is when you do that and they go, well, it's going to be that or appraisal. Appraisal, take me to appraisal. Because I like what he says as a contractor. If you do your job correctly and you have documented the loss correctly, you're not trying to exaggerate things, you're not trying to make more money and getting greedy – you have done your job, then you know what? Let's go to appraisal. 
because I am going to document my losses. I am doing this the correct way. And that umpire who's going to come in there if necessary, it's going to be very clear that I win. Um, and I, I like that. I, I love that honesty approach to it, that matter of fact, because I do know my crap. I know what I'm doing as a contractor. But I think that many people hire contractors that aren't real contractors. And when it comes time for appraisal and to put up or shut up, then they go, mm, you know what? I don't know if I want to do that. How do I get an attorney involved here to go battle for this one? Bec- but I'm, I'm really starting to, am I, am I, I wrong, I Matt? Because no. appraisal is becoming more popular in my head. I'm, I'm starting to think about it more. It, it's becoming, well, it's becoming more popular in other states. And there are some states where the carrier demands appraisal and it pisses the insureds off. And there's some states where the insureds demand appraisal and the carriers say no. So in some states, insurance companies want to go to appraisal more. And in some states, they don't want to go to appraisal ever. And it's the states that have leverage for the policyholder, the ones that have the the attorney's fees that are automatic, the one-way attorney's fees, meaning that if you go to court against the carrier and you win, your attorney's fees will get paid. Mm-hmm. It's in those states that the carriers want to go to appraisal because it's an alternative dispute resolution. In the states where there isn't a one-way attorney's fees, they don't want to go to appraisal. They fight against the appraisal all the time because in appraisal, you generally, generally, mm-hmm. there are better appraisers than others. Generally, you're splitting the baby. Whatever the difference is, you can pretty much anticipate you're probably going to get at least halfway there. But it's a risky situation either way. Appraisal is, they call it the Wild West. I kind of get annoyed with this term because everyone says, well, that's the Wild West there. Everywhere's the friggin' Wild West, it seems like. Where's the East? But with appraisal, it isn't necessarily a, a logical argument. Sometimes it's just a good old boy network that you're dealing with. And eh, we're going to let you win this one, John. Mm-hmm. Hey, Bob, you can have that one. A lot of appraisal is won in the umpire selection. If you pick an umpire that is favorable to policyholders and you have that guy in the wings, you're better off than if the carrier sends a list and it's a very carrier-friendly umpire that wants to get as much work from the carrier as possible so that he leans towards the carrier's appraiser constantly. So a lot of the battle is won and lost in selecting the umpire. And sometimes you have to go to court to get the umpire selected because you can't get the parties to agree on who the umpire would be. Mm-hmm. It's like a jury selection. It's, yeah. You know, I can't, can't agree. I want, to, I want this juror because there and might if be they do that. me. It's like it's usually like uh, retired judges that get named as the umpire, and they don't know anything about insurance claims. And so you could be Brad Gardner and be awesome, and then you have that ex-judge, and he's going to look at these things, and he might decide to go a completely different route altogether. He might be an ex-magistrate court guy that's used to splitting the baby, and he says, ah, I think it'll be fair. Let's just do this number. And then the carrier side's going to sign off on that immediately. Where do you find it's a good risky. appraiser? Sorry, Rob, but where do you find a good appraiser? Well, there are there are organizations. There's the IAUA, the yeah, yeah. Um, Insurance Appraisal and Umpire Association. Is that Saul? Now that one Who's is Saul? Saul with? Bob Norton. Saul might be a part of that. Yeah. I'm no, gonna, no. Saul's going to kill me. He watches. He doesn't no. watch the show. My my bad, brother. I'm sorry. Saul, I'm thinking of you. Saul and uh, Neil. Um, Neil's going to kill me now, too. No, uh, they they had started their own group, but I don't think Saul's a part of that group anymore. But there was uh, the American 
or, or the Appraisal and Umpire Association, AUA. There are several organizations yeah. like that, but the organizations like that, you can find appraisal uh, professionals that do a lot of appraisal. And, and they are usually members of those organizations, and they get training and doing those kinds of things. And I think that if you go to those types of organizations looking for one, you're probably better off. You can also get a good list of umpires from those kinds of situations. Yeah. And these are people that are trained. And because they're trained and they have a certification, they're more likely to get selected as an umpire from the carrier side, too. They have a reason to be on your umpire list. Yeah. They're IAUA certified umpire or something along those lines. And there's different organizations. I just happen to know these off the top of my head. Yeah. So... It doesn't mean that the, any of them are better than others. I really don't know, to be honest. I'll plug him just because, hey, Brad, if I don't plug you, Brad, Brad, Brad Garner Consulting.com, he has his own appraisers over there that there he go. works with, and you can hire them right there. So, Brad, if I, I've got it. I am biased, everybody. Yeah. Completely biased as he is a client. <laughs> but, hey, I have seen the work that the man has done. I've been out there, so I yeah. do know that he's doing something right. You've, we understand a lot more about appraisal now, and I'm, I'm still a proponent of it. I really think I'm becoming more of a proponent. I think it depends on what state you're in. In Florida, I like it right now. Right now, it's it's going to be something that you're really going to like because it's going to be a lot better than arbitration. Now, that's where I want to go next. Okay. Because as I mentioned, binding arbitration, your average homeowner thinks I'm saving a little money. Great, I'm not going to court. And they are going to get slammed in arbitration when they get in there and understand what's going on. Give me some light and shed some light on arbitration now. So arbitration is is very much like a mediation, which is something that exists in Florida, not many other states, um, where you would go in front of an arbiter. And the arbiter um, is selected by the court, and that arbiter is basically going to decide who's right and who's wrong and who owes who what, and it's going to be binding. And you're going to present your case and the care is going to present their case. And you, you probably need an attorney in that. So it might as well be going to court because if you don't bring one, guess what? The carrier side is an attorney mm -hmm. and they're definitely bringing everything that they have to the table. So if you don't have any experience in dealing with this kind of a thing, I think that public adjusters will probably think that they are okay to do this because they do a lot of mediations. That's not a good idea. This is more of a legal proceeding. This needs to be an attorney, but the attorney's fees aren't going to get paid. And if this is a requirement that is going to be in policies, and it is in a lot of policies now that you have to go to binding arbitration, that suit isn't even possible, then this is going to be something where you have to convince this non-judge, non-jury. This is a person that you have to convince. It's almost like an umpire, but the umpire is selected as someone that doesn't really understand insurance stuff. So you're convincing this arbiter of what's going on. They're going to have a lot of control. I'm not, I'm not thrilled with it because in mediation, you can say, no, we're done, and you can walk away, and it's not binding. And so you could probably come to an agreement in mediation, do really well, possibly. In arbitration, there's going to be a decision. Yes. It might work out. It might not. See, I, what I think about, and I've been to some arbitration when I was doing collections for contractors, so a different kind, but we were doing collections at that time. And so our company would represent the collection side of, you know, hey, listen, we're here. This money is owed from a collection standpoint above and beyond. There's the interest here. We, we can say these books are accurate. Here is what we could represent. And I would see a family walk in, and that nice attorney would walk over to them before the arbitration started, and 
hey, I'm, I'm, hey, I'm here on behalf of so-and-so, and it's very nice to meet y'all. I'm sorry we have to go through this disagreement today, and, you know, definitely want to let you know that we're going to go for what's fair and what we think is right, and I understand there's going to be a di- – and they would go, yeah, yeah, you know, we're just really – and they would talk to them and – very then, polite. Very polite. Very. And I would sit there and go, oh, Lord, please. Oh, yeah. And what what I want people to know is that this this is cutthroat. This is not a let's go in here, shake hands, and oh, you have some pictures there on your cell phone. How cute. Oh, that's really nice. Here. <laughs> right here, judge. Let me take out my stack of everything that you didn't know was coming at you and, you it. and then exactly it's how it goes. and then it goes like this and the person goes oh, no 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 i didn't mean it that way I, I i didn't say that did i um no you'd said that when you called in the claim right here so was this right and all of a sudden this turns into something where the person is literally breaking down and i want people to know that that is real and like you get an attorney you're in court whether they say you're it is or not. And I understand that maybe the wording is different, but the insurance company is pushing for binding arbitration for a reason. And I like what you said. You can't walk away from it. They know I'm going to take my billion-dollar attorneys in there, and we're going to walk away a better situation than what we came in. Oh, definitely they are. So, yeah. But you're right. I mean, they, they do that kind of thing. They do. They'll make you feel like you're their friend. They do this in um – in the SIU investigations and everything too, they they very very friendly. They just want you to feel super comfortable, yeah. and then they ask you a really tough question, completely out of left field, and you're like, "Oh shit, this is real." Mm-hmm. Um, or they might even lead on someone, and if you don't have a, a an attorney there to say something, you know, yeah. do you think that that hailstorm five years ago was the one that might have caused this damage? Yeah, nodding my head. <coughs> trying to get you to agree with me and the policy goes yeah maybe they don't know any better if they don't have an attorney that knows what the hell's going on right there saying no you can't do that stop because in arbitration it's not like an objection your honor it's it's stop leading the witness or yeah you're you're manipulating my client cut it out i love the one word sip of mike and we can't agree that your neighbor's houses they flooded as well i mean this was a pretty big rainstorm right well, yeah, they all they all did, and the the water. I mean, I I wasn't there, but the water it was rising quickly. I'm assuming that's why you were you were so scared. Y- yes, I, I mean, of course it was. The water was piling up in my front yard. Huh, man. And it, did any of it get into your home, like the in, inside? Well, some some came through. I, I on the, like my door. You know, it wasn't. I didn't have any time to put any sandbags out. Gosh, that water must have come in there and. You know, whew, it's tough. And they start leading him down. You got flood damage here. You don't have any. You, come on. Um, and then the judge goes, by definition, that came up and you have flo-. And all they're trying to say is, man, my whole, my whole house got flooded. I mean, I'm, they don't even know the difference between the words. Yeah. Well, uh, you're not going to have a good semantic argument in front of an arbiter. That's no. for sure. No, they just, yeah. they're going to look at what the book says and go, you did say that. Yeah. And, then, and, the, and then they go back and go... There you go. All right, yeah. we're pretty much done here. And before you know it, you're, what do you mean we're, we're pretty much done here? Well, you have flood damage, man. And there's a cap on that coverage for us. So unfortunately, we're not going to be able to help you out here. I've had clients call uh, before getting me involved as a PA where they say, oh, my house flooded uh, and all these things. And really, it was a pipe burst yep. that caused water in. But it's common vernacular for a policyholder to say, it, it flooded my basement. 
But because they said flood, the, the carrier denied it for flood damage because yeah. it's, it's not a flood policy. And, you know, we got involved and we were able to, to overcome that fairly easily. But people don't know any better. No. And then they say some things and, and arbitration is going to be hard because you have an arbiter that doesn't understand the complexities of the ambiguity of these policies and the fact that wear and tear is, is a condition, not necessarily a cause of loss. Yes, I love that. So, you know, they're going to say, well, because it was old, then it became more susceptible to the wind. So the age of the roof is the cause of loss. It's the proximate cause. And, and the arbiter might not know how important it is or what you're talking about to really do anything there. So it's not the best proceeding. Now, I've only been to two of these myself. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't have a lot of experience. But I can only imagine how bad this is going to get. This is going to be ugly. So mm-hmm. I'm not a fan. If the insurance companies want it, you can almost bet this is not going to be good for you. <laughs> now, you mentioned a minute ago there are people that call you, and I, I know you have such an interesting position, Matt, because you're not the, you're not serving as a public adjuster. Because as you said earlier, it's a conflict of interest, and oh, it would be. Me. Yeah. But here you are with your name and the show and um, the education that you provide. So people are constantly calling you. Um, I watch your stuff to figure out what's going on when you go live, and I want to know, okay, there's a new law. What's, what's his take on it? Because I'd, maybe I, you see something different. When people are calling you and they've got all these questions, they call you because they trust you. And I look at the public adjusting, let's say, industry, and when somebody needs a public adjuster, it's often that, I would assume often, I don't want to put words, you tell me, that maybe they talk to a friend and say, you had that public adjuster that came out for you. Did, oh, yeah, I, I loved, you know, I loved Patrick. He was great. Where, what is it? If they're doing that, how can someone tell whether you have the good and the bad adjuster? Your friend used them and you think they did well. What is well? What is good? And what is bad? And, and when you're teaching and when, you're, when people are learning from you, What's an A on the test versus what's a, a C minus? I'm I'm trying to figure out the grade of adjuster that you are teaching and that that there is out there. And how can the average person know that they've got someone good or bad? It's a really good question. So, from from a personal standpoint, uh, that the satisfaction of the customer in the end is really going to grade the person ultimately because they're working for this client. And they're doing whatever is in the best interest of that client. Now, whether or not that person could have gotten more money or less if they tried harder or did different things is very subjective. There's no way that we'd be able to really know if they could have gotten more or not. Uh, There's no way to know if you'd even have needed a public adjuster or if the carrier would have ended up at this dollar amount or not. Sometimes it's very obvious that you need a public adjuster because you go from a certain amount and suddenly there's a lot more. So ultimately, if the policyholder is happy in the end, then the public adjuster probably did their job well. Now, there are better PAs than others, though, and I find the PAs that are more malleable are the ones that seem to do the best, the ones that are not stringent on the way that they think, the ones that are going to think a little bit outside the box or they'll actually listen to the argument that is being presented to them to try to understand what it is that this person is saying to them and read between the lines instead of, oh, you said those two words, I know I'm supposed to repeat this now. 
those kinds of PAs, they're, they're not as effective. There are PAs that will take a claim, they'll do the bare minimum, they hand it off to an attorney. I'm not a fan. I think that that is doing the bare minimum for someone, and then they're relying on the attorney to do the rest of the job, and they're not really doing policyholders any favors because a lot of times that takes a long time, especially in many states where there's no attorney fees. It might be another two years before they see any kind of a settlement, and then they end up agreeing before it ever goes to trial. There's very few trials in states that don't have the the one-way attorney fees, very, very few. Um, but for public adjusters, it, it's hard to really grade them. But I have seen public adjuster emails that clients have reached out to me and said, hey, let me know if my PA is doing a good job. Okay. And I've seen emails from them where the PA is just badgering their own client saying, they sent you this. We think you should take that. If you don't accept this amount, then we're going to just charge you for this amount. And then we're removing ourselves from the policy. And all they want to do is the bare minimum, basically just show up, get the little bit of coverage approved, and then without negotiating at all, accept that amount, take their fee on it, and move on to the next one. Because from a time perspective, you'd actually make more money as a PA doing that instead of fighting for the best interest of the policyholder getting that claim proper. It'd be better for them to move on to the next one and just take the amount that is initially offered with a minimal amount of effort mm. from the public adjuster. Now they might even have a really good relationship with the insurance company as a result, but I've seen companies that have modeled themselves after that idea. And that drives me up the wall. I hate that. That's bullshit. So if, if you're going to do the bare minimum for your client as a PA, <clears throat> then you're not a great PA. How do you identify those? If they put a attorney packet in front of you on day right one or require you to sign that, that's a good red flag right there. Mm. I know good PAs that do that too. So it's not 100%. Yeah. But a lot of those that are going to do the bare minimum and just hand it off to the attorney are going to do that. So that's a red flag at least. Yes. So you might ask them how many of their clients end up in litigation. Love that question. With all good adjustments, now we came from Georgia where it wasn't in the policyholder's best interest to go to litigation because they weren't going to get attorney's fees. And less than 1% of our files went to litigation as a result. So I felt good about that, but it also drove me insane to even have to send it to litigation. I felt like I didn't do my job. I know a lot of PAs that feel that way and they want to do as much as they can. But there are states where attorney's fees are paid where it's not as bad for the policyholder and going to litigation a little bit faster in those states isn't necessarily a bad thing. So I get it. But if it's nearly a hundred percent, there's a problem. I dated this girl once who uh, really liked to start an argument and then go to sleep on it. Like we, let's just say like we just, an argument was like late at night and I knew that, Hey, listen, you know what? I gotta, I gotta keep her talking so we can come to a resolution of this yeah. thing. Because if not, it's going gonna, it's gonna to sit in someone's head and it's going to stew, you know? And so she liked to do that. I learned quickly, like, she got in an argument and it would end and then it would just, like, sit inside of her, like, oh, man, I'm going to wait till the next argument when I let him tell him about this one right here, okay? So I knew, though, this, 
that I, I'm going to bring this around, people, believe me, <laughs> that I knew that, hey, listen, if there was an argument, we had to keep the conversation going. We couldn't cut it off and just say, well, fine, we'll talk about it another time. We had to keep the discussion happening. And if we did, in the end, there would be a solution that we both could finally go, okay, I feel like I can let my sword put it down and I can find the solution that I need right now. But that didn't happen in the first 10, 15, maybe even 20 minutes. There was an argument happening here. And it was not even, both people were in their corners. But if you kept the conversation moving, you eventually could give a little here, then give. And people could find a solution to it. We could. Yeah. I think about a PA's job is don't, you don't just have to know policy. Like you said, you got to know how to a little bit to talk to people. You got to be able to read between the lines of what that individual is trying to accomplish with what he's saying. And go, okay. I understand how you're reading that, and I know from your perspective how you are too. When I think about a PA, I think about a person that I look at and go, this is a man or woman that it can negotiate, can understand others, can know when to put their foot down and say, this, this is not going to work, and when this is malleable and we can work with it a little bit right here. I sometimes think about a PA that way. Yeah, I mean, yeah. The... Um My number one rule when I'm teaching PAs is don't be a dick. <laughs> it's a good rule in life. Yeah. So when, when you're arguing with uh, the girl you were dating that the first 20 minutes or so, it was a lot of screaming, right? Yeah. There was some screaming. Oh, yeah. 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 So, and then when, when the tempers calmed down, you could come back to the table and have a somewhat reasonable argument. You could at least get yourself past the, immediate reaction to everything she says and maybe start listening and maybe she was doing the same thing maybe not but maybe Um, but if you there there are ways that you can talk to someone to keep them from getting to that boiling point again and you can do that from the beginning and keep it from ever getting there when you're going into an insurance claim it isn't an immediate knockout drag down fight a lot of PAs believe it is and they think that their job is to be a bulldog and sometimes that actually works in high leverage states. Mm-hmm. But in every other state that you policy doesn't have a lot of leverage, they don't have the one-way fees, they don't have all the, all the consumer protection laws, it's not going to work out. So if you're a dick from the get-go, it's going to take a lot longer. And you might as well get an attorney involved because you've, you've already screwed the claim up. Yeah. But if you can be reasonable and actually pay attention to what the argument is, then you can keep off of the red herring arguments and you can focus on what's important to drive towards the coverage that's there. Um, I teach PAs also to stop asking questions that they can't answer. Insurance company cannot define something that isn't defined in their policy because that's going to have long-term consequences for that company. Their legal department is not going to allow them to suddenly define something that isn't defined. So don't ask them, is this damage? They haven't defined it. So you could ask open-ended questions, and you can ask specific questions like, is, is wind covered in the policy? Is hail covered in the Simple questions. Sure. Simple one or two questions in an email tops. If you write a three-page essay about all the ways in which the insurance company is wrong, you've just given them so much to just go down some weird rabbit holes on, but they're not even going to read it anyway. 
And they might answer one of your 15 questions and ignore all the rest of them. And now you have to fight to get back to that because you know you're going to fight that one question. Some of you guys just fight everything and it's not necessary. You can pick your battle, ignore the red herring arguments, ignore all the wool that's pulled over your eyes and stick to what's important in a friendly or at least cooperative manner. And you could do a lot more for your clients. The goal is to settle the claim, not to win the argument. That's it right there. I love, I love what you say right there. Settle the claim and not win the argument. Brings it full circle to my relationship story, okay? <laughs> the key is to go to bed happy, not go to bed angry, okay? Everybody, relationship advice and claims advice all in 30 <laughs> seconds. Get that on some other show. All right. <laughs> Matt, I want to end by how do people get a hold of you? Building Experts Institute, um, obviously listen to this bull. What's the best way for them to keep up to date on what you're going on? I can't wait to see what you're coming out with over here. Um, Building Experts Institute is going to be incredible. Um, I didn't know really what you were doing until we sat down here today. How do they keep up to date so we can put it on the description and across the screen here? Well, I think that if you pay attention to listen to this bull, then you'll capture just about everything. But as Building Experts Institute, and the website there is buildingexperts.institute. That is a thing. Um, keep an eye on that. That's going to have things come out rather slowly in the beginning, and it'll ramp up, and we'll eventually have a new class coming out every month. Uh, but for right now, it's just the one course on defeating unethical engineer tactics, which I think is probably... I'm biased as hell, but I think it's the best course that you can take in this industry right now because it teaches you not only how to deal with engineers, but also how to look at your claim in advance before they even name an engineer to know what kind of a denial that you're possibly looking at up front so that you can completely avoid that denial, possibly avoid their biggest weapon, which is the engineer. But even if you don't, how to set it up when the engineer is there to be able to do things properly with them. Because most of these engineers, they're not unethical they might have some unethical tactics that they don't even realize they're doing. Sure. So you can actually help out by not being a dick and actually working with them on a lot of that stuff. But that class is, is good to put into your normal work, uh, work, I want to say workforce, the flow, I was gonna, workflow thing, you your normal workflows to, to add that in and just add that as part of your normal process. You know, how do we know what is going to be the denial in advance? And then what do we need as a result of that? So we teach you how to play chess in that class as well. Um, but keep keep an eye on listen to this bull on all the social medias. It's on TikTok. It's on Facebook. It's on LinkedIn. It's on YouTube. I personally like to put most of my content on YouTube. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of free okay. educational videos on there as well. You can check out the insurance claim 101 playlist on there and there's a lot of 10 15 minute videos that'll teach you in you know small topics of insurance policies and how they actually work i think they're fun videos i um, mean they're all free so take a look at that but uh you can find me on all the social medias or you could reach out to me by email at matthew spelled with one t at listen to this bolt.com well, our Matthew with two T's will make sure to put that into the description in the comments. Um, I know Hoff and the crew will put it across the bottom of the screen right there, okay? And uh, make sure that people can get a hold of you. Man, it's been, I don't want to say it's been a pleasure because, like, that doesn't say, like, everyone says that in a line. It's a pleasure getting to know you, you know what I mean? But um, it's been, been really awesome 
you know, the last couple of years since I first met you and Dmitry Lipinski and following your content, who you are as a man. Um, I, I think it's pretty cool to see what you're doing in the industry. This thing right here, Building Experts Institute, I know is done at the right place when it comes to you. Um, it's not sitting there like, hey, I'm trying to, you know, make myself famous and trying to make it to a stage somewhere like I think a lot of people are. Um, you do things the right way. Um, and it's been a pleasure to have you here and uh, getting to know you over the last couple of years and following what you do. Um, you know, I'll leave it there, okay? It's been completely mutual, Patrick. Thank you, buddy. All right, until next time, everybody, the Patrick Carr Show. Come around for the next episode. Later.